Welcome to The Strong Room, presented by Macmillan Estate Planning. I'm Herb Ham. Estate planning is about life and legacy, and many estate plans include legacy gifts that help protect nature for generations to come. On today's program, we welcome two people who have been instrumental in developing the Calgary Zoo's rich legacy of conservation. The zoo is not only a treasure for the local community, but is actively involved in global outreach that saves animals and helps change people's lives. With more on the story, we're joined by Brian Keating and Dr. Axel Morenschlager, who have been instrumental in shaping the Calgary Zoo's community-based approach to conservation. Brian begins the story of a famous hippo sanctuary. Years ago, I did some volunteer work in Ghana, in West Africa. I helped them build their uh, an, an effective zoological society. I'd seen how effective we had been, and uh, and other zoos in other parts of the world, how effective they've been in getting uh, people on board in ecological thought. And in Ghana, in West Africa, there's not a lot of ecological thought. People are just working hard just to survive. But they did have a zoo there. They still do. And I thought that if we could get that zoo uh, working uh, with uh, a focus towards getting kids excited about nature, uh, develop nature clubs, uh, natural history excursions into the outback and so on, I thought that we could actually get something spinning and working appropriately. And I worked on that project for a couple of months and it was very effective. And I developed a, a board there and ran their first board meeting so that they could fundraise. And and so things were moving along in that direction. I came back to Canada. I was here for about six or seven or eight months. And one of the environmental movers and shakers that I had met over in Ghana gave me a phone call, a fellow by the name of John Mason. And he he asked if, if the Calgary Zoo would consider being involved in in working uh, on developing a hippo sanctuary. And that's where the Wachow Hippo Sanctuary was born. We invested some finances uh, into getting some biologists into the uh, area where the Wachow Hippo Sanctuary now is in northern Ghana to assess whether or not it was worth making into a park to see if there was enough landscape there, enough diversity, enough habitat to actually make it work. And the answer came back, yes. And uh, that's where Donna Shepard came on the scene. She was a student of mine up at the university. I still teach up at the university within the anthropology department. And Donna started to work. We we employed her for, well, my gosh, she worked on that project for over a decade. She she is still working with Axel, and, and Donna just went into Kenya. That's right. Yeah, and and I, I think one thing you touched on, Brian, that's so crucial when you stand to talk about it, is you talked about communities which is just trying to get by. And and when we talk about the Canadian context, and even when I was mentioning we have so many opportunities for legacy here, here it's often out of choice, you know, because we can choose to do whatever we want to do. But what you're addressing there is is this very difficult situation of how do you affect change, how do you do something positive for conservation in a context where people are desperate, where they are just trying to get by, uh, where they are having an impact on the ecosystems too, and yet there are so many endangered species there that the, it, it, it looks like a dilemma, doesn't it, uh, Brian? It sure does. Yeah. It sure does. In fact, hippos are doing relatively okay in East Africa and Southern Africa. Populations are going down, but they're not 
critical. In West Africa, there are, hippos are almost extinct. There was one population in Ghana that was totally protected by a national park. And this other population that is now forms the population that is the basis behind the development of the Wachau Hippo Sanctuary, that population is very small. The locals knew about it, but the government didn't. When the government found out about it, they wanted to make the area into a national park. The locals realized that if they gave the area up to the federal government as a national park, they would lose control over the land. So they came to my friend John Mason, who came to me for funding and support, and asked, we want to do the same thing that national parks would do. We want to preserve that hippo population, but we want to be in charge of the landscape and reap the benefits from having a park. And that's how the conservation project there began. It was a local initiative. They wanted it. The chiefs there wanted it. So it wasn't a foreigner from Canada coming in and saying, this is what you should do. It was them coming to us and saying, we would like to do this so that we could develop jobs and economic prosperity. Fast forward to today. And well, it's real a real success. And one fundamental thing about that approach, I think, is that um, as opposed to the Western countries sort of in a colonial type way saying, right, this is what we have to do and this is what we have to tell all the poor people around the world because we're so incredible, is that, is that the, this idea of going to places and saying, what do you want? What is important to you? You know, and, and then actually listening and maybe they'll have something to say that's relevant. I'm sure, yeah. you know, we know it's true. Um, and then having the courage from our perspective to say, well, maybe we should go with that instead of what we know best. Exactly. And that, and that is a fundamental difference, I think, in the way that we're approaching problems from the way that a lot of international development agencies work is because we're asking the people, what do you need? By the way, a key outcome for us is conservation. Is it possible to get there together? And in general, it seems like the solution is if we can accommodate the needs of the people, especially in terms of their economic needs, merge those with the needs of the species and the ecosystems, so these ecological needs, then there's a real opportunity for um, for synergy. In, in Wachau, the basic need, the first need that we had to fulfill was water. They were getting all their water from the river and that was doing two things. First of all, people were drinking dirty water that was contaminated often with parasites and other debris. Uh, and second of all, it, it, it was degrading the river's edge, which was the focal point of the park for bringing tourists into seas. They, they didn't want to see people washing clothing and cattle down by the edge or goats down by the edge of the water. They, they wanted to see a natural environment. So by giving them wells, by giving them pumps, which we drilled seven over the period of, of a number of years for the 14 villages that are within the reserve itself. Uh, we, we gave them clean water that took them away from putting pressure on the edge of the, of the habitat that we were trying to protect. And it, so it was a win-win situation. They didn't have to walk as far for water. The water was clean, and they were able to water their animals as well as do their laundry in a safe environment away from the edge of the river. So that, that was one example. And then as time went on, I remember very well one of the ladies that I was with, uh, a, uh, actually the, the wife of uh, our former zoo director, leaned over and asked the little girl, where do you go to school? And the little girl looked up at her and said, I have no school to go to, madame. 
And right away we realized we had to build a school since we've built another one. And, and that, those types of support systems working with the federal government of Ghana so that we weren't funding the whole thing forever. The idea was to build the infrastructure, then they would bring in the teachers and pay the teachers. And, and that worked. And then we found out that teachers often leave because of inadequate housing. So we built some teachers' homes. So one thing leads to the next, which leads to the next. Now there's a clinic there. Uh, and, and the area has been put on the map. Uh, and so they have government representation now in, in Accra. And so Wachao is becoming a little epicenter. And last year, I think there was something like 3,000 visitors visiting the park, which is about carrying capacity. I don't think we want to have more than that. That's about what they can handle now. It's spun off to create something like 50 jobs in the region, all kinds of funds coming in. There's an all-weather road now that goes in, and that was as a direct result of the Hippo Sanctuary. The global principles of Wachau are also at work in the Calgary Zoo's current initiatives, including helping the survival of a rare species of antelope in Africa. And in this particular place, there is this quite big antelope that um, was unknown to science. How is that possible? It's quite big, it's running around, it's in these wetlands where it can dive under the water, can kind of stick its nostrils out, and, uh, and only runs around at night. And uh, actually, <laughs> they're, they're, they're found in remote areas in, in various parts of Africa. Nobody knew that there was a population, as Axel said, in Ghana. And uh, I remember going out with a, with a native in, in Botswana in his dugout called a Makoro. And I, it was just me and this fellow. And he was in the back of the Makoro, poling along in the Okavango Delta. And I said to him, I want to see a Sitatunga. That's, that's my, my desire. Sitatunga, as Axel said, they're a big antelope. They're a beautiful antelope. They're boldly colored with, in, in, in lights and darks and browns and, and whites. And they've got this beautiful set of lyre-shaped horns. And, uh, and when, when you get up close to them, if, if they sense that you're coming in a, in a dugout, they'll actually drop below the water with just their nostrils sticking up. So they've got, they can hide completely in the water. Their, their hooves are long, almost like slippers on an elf and to allow <sighs> them to walk on soft vegetation and they live in the water they've got long shaggy hair uh, and just totally unique and nobody sees them and I said to my I said to my Makoro driver I said I would like to see the Sitatunga and he says ah oh, Mr. Brian very hard but we went out and we, we went absolutely quietly and we were just like not making any noise at all just slowly pulling our way through and sure enough we came across a female and a youngster and I was able to videotape them. The discovery of the species has precipitated another community protected area being set up where there's certain bylaws which protect the habitat and protect the species in some areas while then also setting up the formula to benefit the locals. So the people win, the animal wins, the habitat wins and because the habitat wins all sorts of other species are being protected that we don't even know about yet. Dr. Axel Morenschlager and Brian Keating take us to Madagascar when our discussion continues after this break. This is The Strong Room. <laughs> 